Welcome to the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks for being a part of this journey. This podcast is all about the getting started moments because, let's face it, the first step toward accomplishing anything can be the hardest part. And we cover all the bases. I bring on guests to share their getting started moments and how they overcame obstacles and pressed on, how they built their business from the ground floor, or how they took a chance on themselves to follow their purpose. I also share some solo episodes where I narrate and expand on many of the blog articles I've written around getting started and some of the lessons I've learned along the way. This podcast has been a labor of love for the last several years, and I'm grateful to have you join along and support me on this journey. I hope you enjoy this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, please welcome in Nick Krabs, who is a partner and founding member of Vinyl a product development firm that works with corporations, institutions, and investors to build unique mobile, web, and applications that are technically excellent, visually appealing, and create real and measurable business value. Prior to his work with Vinyl, Nick spent nearly a decade working for some of the nation's largest banking institutions, local municipalities, and large enterprise environments as an IT specialist and manager. Embracing his more entrepreneurial endeavors, community engagement, and tech evangelism, Nick has worked with several startups, local community organizations, and leadership with large-scale events to leverage his knowledge and expertise in technology, management, and recruiting to judge events, offer mentorship, speak on panels, and contribute to a growing tech and entrepreneurial ecosystem. I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Nick. So without further ado, please welcome in Nick Krabs. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you. Hey, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to get connected with you. I know we have some mutual friends and, you know, your background looks unique, um, which is always a good guest for the podcast because, you know, getting started, there's no right time. There's no right, you know, approach. There's no perfect LinkedIn profile that says you're going to do whatever because of it. So it's always intriguing to talk with folks like yourself. Um, I wrote a few words down here. I thought this might be maybe a fun. Um, so I wrote four words down and, and I'm going to let dealer's choice here. You pick the word. And then based on that, we're going to go down a few rabbit holes. Okay. That'd be okay. Fun. Sounds good. So serendipity, growth, curiosity, and vision. Those four words, which one sounds intriguing to start with? Can I pick two? Sure. Okay. I'm going to pick curiosity and vision. Okay. So, I'm going to start in a weird angle with the word vision then, and then we'll, we'll dive into curiosity. So looking back a little bit in terms of, and obviously you're going to fill in the gaps here, but with your background, your, your career, if you will, obviously you've started this company many years ago, but before that, it looked like it was kind of maybe, you know, similar to why I was and a lot of folks, it's like kind of, you know, jumping around to some different things, trying to figure out life, if you will. So did you have growing up, I don't want to say a clear vision, but an idea of like what you wanted to be when you grew up and how far divergent are you from that, uh, from that original goal? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so <laughs> the answer is yes, I did have a clear vision. 
the second part of the answer is no, I am not doing that vision at all. Um, so I think that, you know, listen, my, my whole family are, are kind of, you know, doctors, lawyers, working professionals is, is, you know, my extended family, parents, all those things. And, um, you know, I really thought that I was going to just kind of fit into one of those. So, right. When I went to school, I was actually like a history and poli sci major. I was getting ready to take the LSATs and go to law school. Um, but, you know, my, my, my dad was a software engineer and he, you know, starting in the early eighties, all the way through the nineties. And he, he worked at, you know, Coca-Cola and NASA and all these really cool places. Um, and so I got exposed and I remember being able to trade chores for learning how to code when I was like eight, nine, 10, 11, which when you're those ages, and if you can like avoid, you know, taking the trash out and mowing the lawn, like, heck yeah, I'll learn how to code. Um, and so the truth is, is as a, as a professional, I've never really done anything else. I started, you know, getting paid to do those things when I was a teenager. Um, and, you know, I, I diverged a little bit within the technology space of what I worked on. Um, but, uh, you know, and so when I was going to school, it was always kind of this like, you know, the narrative in my head was I'm doing this so I can like make okay money to pay for being in school, but I'm going to like move on with my life. And then one day I woke up and realized that I'm like doing the thing already that people want to be doing. Right. So I don't know, it, was, it didn't like click for me at the time that I was already involved. And so, you know, I'm like 20, I don't know, 25 and I've got like 10 years experience in the industry. Right. <laughs> um, and so then, you know, the, the natural progression of that is I did try a couple different uh, tech startups, works for some friends, startups. Um, and, uh, you know, those things kind of, you know, they worked out in the sense I learned a lot and took some venture funding and, you know, launched some products that some people used. Uh, but, uh, I was in school and I was in my senior year of, of undergrad and, um, going to Boise state. And I was doing like contract gigs on the side, mostly infrastructure stuff. So, maybe moving people to the cloud for the first time or, you know, working with their on-prem infrastructure, migrating databases, things like that, just on a contract basis, um, part-time to like pay for while I was in college. And um, I woke up one day and I was like, man, if I work 12 hours a day for the next like four months, I maybe can get the work done that's in front of me. Like it was, the, it just like, it hit me that much, all independent contractor stuff. And so I started calling around um, some of my friends who I knew were also doing this. And I said, hey, I, you know, I need to sub out some contract work to you. And, and uh, you know, all of them kind of laughed in my face and were like, yeah, we're too busy too. And so on like the fourth or fifth phone call of this, I was like, you know, I think, I, I think there's a company here. <laughs> like, I think we could just start a consultancy. And so, you know, I called a couple of them back and kind of proposed that we, we uh, form something and become business partners. And we went from you know, six to 51 engineers in a year and a half. It was fast. Um, which I hope I never have to grow a company that fast ever again. <laughs> uh, and then, and then that's kind of what I've been up to, you know, I mean, we can mostly these days, I mean, obviously, you know, eight years later, it's a little different than what we did eight years ago, but mostly these days it's uh, it's all med tech stuff. Mm -hmm. And so working on new product innovation and healthcare, um, some fintech stuff, a similar kind of thing, highly regulated, hard to innovate on technology side. And so having, you know, trusted professionals that come do that is, uh, is really where we like to play. So, and I want to dive in that a little bit more. Um, but I'm actually curious to go back. You said something and, and maybe this is the the parent in me. I don't know if you have kids. I have a, 
a nine-year-old. But, I have uh, dog. I have dogs and goats, man. They, they you know, not the same. <laughs> well, the uh, what you mentioned about learning to code as a kid, an offshoot of doing the chores, because I'm in that phase now, like trying to get him to to learn coding, and and there's some. I, obviously we're fortunate in 2022 to have a lot of technologies where he could right. you know, utilize like scratch or there's that um, hopscotch he had done a little bit. I think they were on shark tank. Um, so there's a few different ones. So I'm curious one, when you uh, were learning this as a kid, what did you use? Cause that, that was a different time. Um, yeah. I didn't know what was available. Um, and then secondly, just was there anything that you learned from that experience that maybe would be helpful for parents in terms of getting their kids interested in coding, like, do you remember what excited you about it um, or what didn't maybe to, to avoid? Yeah. So, I mean, back when I was doing this, when I was a little kid, I really just had an IDE and a book on HTML and my dad standing over my shoulder being like, this is how you do this. And this is how you do this. And I was mostly learning, you know, web technology. So really just HTML, CSS, really basic stuff to put up, uh, you know, a, a web page. Um, it got a little bit more complicated, a little bit down the road. Probably now I'm like 12, 13, started doing some C sharp, C programming. Um, I don't know that I would, at the time, I was overly all that interested. I think it was like kind of fun that I got to like write some weird characters on a screen and then like load the page uh, and a thing happened, right? Like the builderness of it was kind of fun. Um, but I don't know that it like struck me as any more interesting than anything else I was doing. Um, but I really liked not having to mow the lawn. So <laughs> that was, that was kind of the trade for me was that uh, I got out of this thing I really didn't like doing. And I got to do this thing that was like kind of fun. Um, but the nice thing about that is I, I did go to a, a, a technology charter high school in, you know, now I'm like 14. And so it was really nice because a lot of that stuff kind of added up where day one, when I jumped into that experience, I already kind of knew how to do some of this stuff. And so then I got to feel a lot of pride because I, you know, I was already better at it in quotes than my peers, um, which of course, after four years kind of normalized, right? Everybody got to about the same goodness of it, but um, it was nice to just like, feel like I knew something. I had secrets that other people didn't know. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, at a nerd high school, that makes you popular. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> so anyways, that was, I, I think it was a trade that I got to trade for something I didn't like doing. And it was fun to see the action, like turn into something that was tangible and I made it right. Yeah. That was cool. If someone, I'll press you on this and you can give me a few different answers if you want. But like, if someone was learning today how to code, is there a certain language you would recommend to start with or a certain even program to use anything specific that comes to mind? Yeah. So there's kind of a, a few different ways to answer that question. Um, I think if someone's just curious and wants to, you know, explore what, you know, writing code might be like, I think starting with web technologies is a good way to do it. Um, the The impact of being able to see like what you did turn into something is pretty quick in those technologies. And there's also a lot of tools that can make it easier or kind of do it for you. So if you're like, don't know how to do a specific part of it, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of different stuff out there that can help you like build your thing without having to write every single line of code yourself. Um, so if you're just kind of like, hmm, maybe this is for me, I don't know, right? That's not a bad way to start. Uh, where that plays out is if it really is for someone, so much of what 
is being developed in this day and age is stuff that's web technologies anyways, right? Like, I mean, every single app or, you know, application on your computer or whatever, it's all web technologies that are serving a lot of that up. Um, I think the weakness in some of that where people don't go get a full CS degree <clears throat> is uh, something that computer science degrees teach you is like really how a computer works and how it processes information and how like every component of it uh, is is there for a purpose. And I think that knowledge gap is missed in a lot of today's uh, programmers because they didn't really like learn how to make a, a RAM efficient application because that wasn't taught at coding school, right? That's yeah. a pretty specific CS thing. And so I think there's a little bit of a gap there that I think people need to be aware of as they're learning to code um, that you do, you should, you really should try and learn, you know, more of a, a full breadth of computer science knowledge to be a, a really strong uh, programmer and, you know, however long that journey takes you to accomplish. Okay. Well, so I want to go back to, I want to get back to vision here. Cause and you kind of touched on it a little bit is, you know, you, you got a group of friends and like, Hey, let's do this kind of thing. And it kind of just happened, but can you share some of the early conversations, like maybe some of the early hurdles that you all had to jump through to actually go from just you doing some consultancy work, some, some obviously um, contract work to actually creating this into a real organization. Anything you remember that was either positive that it worked well, or gosh, we, you know, we definitely uh, would have done it differently if we had another attempt. Sure. Yeah. And no, that's a great question. Um, so I'll say that, um, you know, I have a, a pretty good network of people who've been pretty close to me for a long time and we're all builders, like all of us. Um, I, I think that that's maybe what has like made us a group and not everybody knows everybody but i mean just loosely association there's there's a group of people that have been around me for a couple decades and some of them i go back all the way to being in high school with one of my business partners i you know graduated high school with um and we're all builders so we've worked for each other at different companies we've you know we've built all kinds of stuff um even communities right we've tried to build communities of stuff that we've we've done um and so those conversations are pretty um well lubricated already if you know what i mean like because we've had decades of like hey i'm working on this thing what are you doing can you like come over to my house and tell me what you think of this and could you like build this part of it like that kind of thing has happened over and over and over and over and over for a long time um and so you know when it came time to running consultancy i think a lot of us were like oh okay yeah cool like i got nothing better going on right let's start a company hooray right we've done that this is like iteration number four <laughs> starting a company together um, and, uh, you know, would we've done things differently? I think looking back now, we weren't in the early, early days, we weren't so sure how to charge for our services. A lot of us had been subcontractors already, or like working for another big consulting agency who of course negotiate all the pricing away from you. And so I think we weren't charging enough for what we were doing for like, you know, probably the first 12 months or so. Um, and, and where that really boils down to is the stability of your entity. At the end of the day, you know, if you're not charging for enough for your services, you're going to look at, you know, 12 months later and be like, huh, how do we lose money, right? right. Um, things like that happen. So just doing some of that upfront math to really understand the, the hard costs of putting your, your uh, service together. Um, but once we got over that, I mean, it wasn't um, pretty smooth sailing. And, and it's been interesting because... Um, you know, the phone mostly rings for us. Like we don't have to go do a whole lot of outreach um, today. I mean, mostly word of mouth. And so, you know, learned a lot of lessons just about 
how to negotiate these contracts, how to make sure that we're charging accordingly, how to uh, navigate deliverables, mm-hmm. um, pretty normal stuff for anyone doing services work. Well, how important, because, you know, a lot of folks would, they would love to hear that for their business. Like, hey, we just have people reach out, we get good referral business, what have you. How has that just been great, um, you know, customer success, you know, keeping in touch with clients, obviously, you know, building good products. Like what, what do you think has been the, maybe it's all the above the catalyst to that. So I think um, I'm going to say something really general and then I'm going to say how it applies to the business. So I have this vision of like all of us here on this planet, we're in this weird experience. And the only thing I can say, the reason why we're here is to like be of service to other humans. Like that's the best reason I can assume that we live this experience, right? And so you can apply that in a lot of ways in your life, right? I mean, like putting the grocery cart back at the grocery store is like one of the minimalist litmus tests, right? right? (laughs) Or if you're helpful to other humans, right? But you can also really apply this to your business, right? And in a services firm, you almost have to. And so we try really hard to live, breathe, and eat this all the time. Our job is to like walk into an organization and to make their lives easier by making sure that their technology is built correctly on time, it's delivered perfectly, and to hand it off to them. Uh, that's that is what they're hiring. They're not hand, hiring the ability to write code. They're hiring trust, right? That we will get it done. And so, you know, we talk about this a lot with our staff. We talk about this as our partnership. Um, that that really the service that we're providing is is trust. Um, and so. I think that that has worked out in itself that we, we do deliver these things pretty well. People want to use this again. Uh, they tend to refer us to other projects, you know, even outside of their organizations as they come up. And in the med tech space, there aren't really that many like trusted partners. There's lots of software engineering firms, but you know, med tech can't really outsource it to India. Usually they can't, you know, they have to really know that you're going to follow the different uh, regulatory environment that that, software is going to have to exist in. Uh, and so we just kind of found a niche where, you know, trust is valued really, really, really high. And uh, we ha- we've been doing it for a long time. And so, um, and of course, if you do good work, you know, you never know where that's going to end up. Do you find that, you know, one of the things that often gets overlooked is that communication with the client, making sure that not only are you hitting, but maybe exceeding the deliverables um, and getting that feedback. Do you have a certain you know, I don't know, you, you know, sometimes they're under, you know, you would call them SLAs or anything of, of that, you know, to be able to say, all right, this is when we're following up. This is when we're asking for the feedback, good, bad, or indifferent on how we did. How often is that communication um, done, I guess, between yourselves and the clients? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we do have a, a master services agreement that specifies some of that things. But Truth be told, I don't even know if that's that's the important part of it. Like that's the the legal requirements for how you do this. But the truth is, is what you have to really do is is constant validation with both clients and potentially their customers. I mean, part of what we're doing is we're also trying to give them data about how the prospective users of this application are reacting too. So we have these conversations back and forth about like, oh, well, like it appears when we did this case study that like users don't actually want this feature or it needs to be somewhere else or whatever. So we're trying to give them that kind of feedback at the same time. Um, For us, we have people who are assigned to this communication structure and that's so outside of an engineering role, uh, we have what are called producers. 
Uh, producers loosely manage the engineering team under them as well, but they mostly manage the the kind of deliverables with the client. And so, uh, I mean, these these folks might be talking to our clients multiple times a day, three, four times. I mean, as many times it takes to make sure that uh, they're communicated with expectations are, you know, laid out correctly, that the team understands what they need to be working on and, and direct them. And so we just literally have a person assigned to that role in each engagement. You know, you mentioned something earlier about, um, you know, being in med tech and then doing some of the fintech stuff. We, you know, I guess maybe it's the cousin of vision, but is focus. You know, you could do a million things, right? There's so right. many different avenues. How did y'all decide to stick in that lane? Like, why why was that valuable, I guess, for the organization as a whole? Yeah, we did it the best way. We did it organically. Um, so, you know, in our history, we'd built all kinds of stuff. I mean, we built a, a smart matching service for, like, betting on um, video game, like, outcomes. We built the largest ski and snowboarding tracking app in the world at the time. And we built all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, all for clients. Um, I think my favorite one is there was a, a company in Colorado or an organization in Colorado, actually nonprofit that tracks the uh, likelihood of avalanches. And so we built uh, a piece of software for them that like integrated, you know, 50 years of math into predictive models. And that was cool. Mm-hmm. Has nothing to do with med tech or fintech, but it was cool. Um, what happened was we, we started doing more and more med tech work Um and it got to this point where the demand for us to be able to do that was outstripping like everything else. I mean, we were just having s- such a huge influx of really medical stuff. And so we stopped and looked at the industry. We realized that like there wasn't, there's lots of people trying to build the next greatest snowboarding app, right? But there weren't that many people that were trying to service like research institutions and hospital systems and venture backed med tech startups. Like there weren't like a ton of companies that were positioned well to, to like work with those organizations. There's actually very, very few. Um, and so as the demand grew, we just said, well, let's, let's, let's try and service these clients. Let's get better at understanding their problems so that we can like bring more and more knowledge and insight to the table, uh, when we're having those engagements. And, you know, so that's kind of been our, our vision for like five years now. And it's, it's worked out great, honestly. Well, and and doesn't it help from a standpoint of, we talk about the referrals and kind of word of mouth, if people know kind of what you're doing, Instead of just like, oh, yeah, I think they kind of can do anything. Maybe just call, you know, it's like, oh, they right. are good in this space and this is what they do well. It's like, okay, now I got the yeah. right people. I mean, we teach startups all the time to like think about your beachhead markets and like how you're going to enter in a certain place. Now, it's funny because I kind of did that in reverse order to a certain extent, but like it's true. Like the more directed you are and the more you can understand a specific customer segment uh, that you're engaged with, the better you are going to be at servicing them and likely more successful too. So we, uh, you know, we got there in a roundabout way. <laughs> well, and you mentioned that. I know, you know, some of the other stuff maybe you can share about, um, that you're uh, that you're leading there in the Boise area from an entrepreneur standpoint, is there anything you would share, you know, maybe helpful someone starting a company or in the process like right now, whether it has to do with, again, focus or vision, whether it has to do with maybe um, how they think about scaling, you mentioned going from six to whatever, 50, anything you would share that's helpful, um, kind of that's on top of your mind right now? Um, yeah, to a certain extent, I, I think, generally my evergreen advice for people who are looking to start a venture. And I'm going to make some assumptions here that like, this is a a venture backed company that largely has a technology play. Right. Since that's mostly what I talk about. 
um, you know, try really, 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 really hard to validate that your product is needed or wanted in the marketplace prior to ever building anything like save yourself the pain, the hassle, all that stuff. And like, be really certain, you know, exactly who your target customer is that they want this from you already. You've talked to 200 of them and they're telling you that this is like a, you know, I'm making that number up 200, right? Mm -hmm. Don't, don't write 200 down if you're listening to me. But um, like, I think a lot of early, especially first time founders, they think that they have to build something and like go sell it. And then they're going to know something about what they're trying to build. Uh, I think a lot of people run around and waste a lot of time um, before they ever even know if anybody wants your thing. And there's a lot of great ways to do that. I've been recommending to people for quite a while to go purchase the Google Ventures book. Uh, It's called Sprint and it's it's defining the design sprint process. And the whole book is about how to make decisions quickly in a way that are testable uh, that you can get actionable feedback from. Um, and it's awesome. Uh, we've applied that at vinyl in a lot of different ways. We'll run design or product sprints with our clients, um, pretty as close as we can to those processes. And it's, and it's a wonderful tool to be able to, uh, learn a lot about what you're trying to build without, without having to spend the money on building this whole, you know, technology arbitrage. So would that be like step? So if someone like today was like, God, I got this really cool idea. I got to go forward with it. Would step one be the the Google Ventures thing? Would there be sure. something else you'd share? Any anything else to kind of start ideating a little bit more or getting some of that market research that maybe has worked? I mean, I would say the first step is to find someone whose opinion you really trust, who you think is smart, who maybe knows something about what you're thinking up, and go like have coffee. Like, I mean, start there, like just tell someone about it and see what they, what their reaction is. And maybe they have some ideas too. I mean, sometimes that's how you find your co-founders is right. Just be like, I have this idea. Right. Um, But you know, when it comes time to get serious and you know, maybe you want to turn this into a product or a company. Yeah. I think then it's, then it's time to pick up some books. There's a lot of them out there um, that talk about different processes to validate uh, your idea. Uh, and that's, and then again, assuming that it's a, it's a company that needs to be venture backed, these are the same lessons that you'd have to then apply in like actual slides to pitch for funding, right? So all pitching for funding is, is telling prospective investors this work that you've already done. That's all it is. It's like, you don't say I read the book, you just like report on the numbers, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? But like, that's all, that's all pitching for investing is, is like making sure that you're reporting on the right kinds of things that validate that your product is worth funding. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, those are kind of the first steps. But yeah, I would say step number one is tell someone about it, talk to them about it, yeah. see what they think about it. Is there anything needed? And and, and I'm, I guess I'm looking at this for someone that maybe is not technical in nature, because to your point, they're like, I got to go build this thing. And obviously mm-hmm. we hear, you know, hey, let's just get, get an MVP out there. You know, that's obviously thrown around a lot. But how important is it even just to get like a wireframe together, something kind of more of a visual representation for those pitch meetings? Like, do you hear, do you see that as valuable or is it more just, hey, I've done the market research. There's something viable here. And here's what we're going to do. Is there any coaching you'd give on that avenue of, of maybe which route to go? 
Yeah. I mean, listen, every company is a little different. Every founder is a little different. Uh, uh, everyone's in communities with different resources available to them. So, you know, the, the real answer is you have to find the path that is successful for you, right? That's that's like the real, real answer. Yeah. But there are lots of things you can do to to arm yourself with, you know, more, more weapons in your arsenal, so to speak, to be successful. Um, MVPs are a, a great tool to test in the marketplace. I think you can get even earlier in that. So um, I've seen companies like put together really slick uh, kind of functional prototypes, think um, Envision kind of prototypes, right? And they'll throw that out on the internet and they will like take orders for pre-sales, right? And they'll use that as a metric to validate that their product is useful in the marketplace. Um, that's not a bad way to go. Um, that is more kind of a design wireframing process as opposed to writing code. Uh, what I always advise people is if you can get away with, uh, you know, starting your company without writing a line of code, do it. Um, because it's eventually you will have to build the thing for real. Um, but if you can get some pre-sales or get funding or get, you know, recruit your co-founders or some early staff or whatever, without ever trying to build an MVP, um, you really, really should try and go that way because if it doesn't work, you're usually not out a whole lot, right? No harm, no foul, right? You haven't spent a bunch of venture dollars on expensive engineering um, that nobody wants. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say anything you can do to validate your idea without spending a lot of money, that's, that's the route to go. Um, and I also like to tell founders like, we all think as founders that we know the right answer. We're like, oh, I know this market segment. I know the problems. I know how to build this application for them. You don't. You don't know. I don't know. Like the only people that know are the customers who need to buy it from you. That's all. Those are the only people that know. Right. <laughs> and so like try and go get the feedback from them uh, because it's a really scary place when a founder's like, this is my problem that I'm solving for me and I know something uh, you know, unusual about the marketplace. That's that's usually a scary place to be. And most of us are not those people. Um, so, anyway, so sorry, I just kind of rambled off. No, like that, a bunch of, no that's <laughs> good. No, no. <laughs> well, and I guess one more on that um, before I, I transition is from and obviously talking about getting funding. Do you find? And again, I know the answer is probably different for everyone, but if someone is going to build a technology, is is the most of the time the play to go try to get some funding. Cause I'm, these things aren't, they're not cheap to build. Right. So, or, you know, some folks that may want to do it themselves because they don't want to go down that funding route, you know, um, is, right. is that something you see like, Hey, get once you get to a certain point, you probably need to get funding or yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Cause I know folks, I get asked this a lot of just like, yeah, I don't know. Do I go, you know, do I have to go pitch investors now or could I kind of build this? I could take a loan out and build some of this myself, you know, like, right. I don't know what the best route is. So I don't know if you've come across that a lot or, you know, folks are asking that a lot. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is, this is probably the one, the, the biggest question about forming a company. Um, and I, I've certainly seen a lot of pitches where the company isn't even right for venture funding. Um, they might even still get the fundraise, but venture funding has a pretty specific thesis generally. And the thesis is that the product is very, very high growth and has a prospective exit pretty quick. Um, so usually uh, a, a good company for venture funding is on like a, you know, seven to 10 year horizon. And what has to happen in those seven to 10 years? Okay. So you build your product and you're onboarding 
customers or users really, really, really fast. Some of these venture products aren't even charging. There's like a free, it's like a free service. They're just, they have some other way that they're monetizing the user base, right? Think Facebook, right? There's a really good, you're the product on Facebook, right? Um, but the idea is that over the over that time, there's an opportunity to uh, either IPO or to be acquired by a potential competitor. Now, not every company fits on that, that horizon. Um, not every company is, is a company that does that. There's plenty of companies where the idea is to build it, operate it, build a machine that pays out a dividend every year, right? That's like a, but that's different than venture funding. So a VC firm isn't going to look at those kind of deals. And so I think it helps for a founder to know what you are, right? Am I a company that's, that's likely to be venture backed? Do I have a, a company that could be acquired? Is it going to be high growth? Are these, there are these types of uh, user onboarding that are ubiquitous enough that it makes sense for an investor to look at me. And if, if the answer is no, don't worry about it. Like there's lots of others, SBA loans, there's lots of other ways to get your idea or company funded. And it's just venture isn't, isn't typically going to be the one. Um, and you might in the way you validate that is you can put together a pitch deck and go pitch 10 investors and see like venture investors and see if you can get a seed round together. If they say, yes, okay, well maybe, maybe there is an opportunity here. And then you kind of got to craft how that, that vision comes true. But if not, then no, right. Then there's another, there's other avenues to go down. Uh, I even saw a revenue based um, investment firm here recently that that literally they're basically giving you a loan that that pays out on the revenue of your company and so it's like i mean even another interesting model on how you could get your your idea funded um so anyways that's the only advice i'd give know what you are um know what kind of company you're building uh if it's a lifestyle company for you and you plan on operating it forever probably don't go get venture funding <laughs> that's a fair point no i think that's a and that's a great advice too yeah if if you're kind of just taking the approach of okay, what people tell me I should do. Oh, get that. Okay, get some some you know cash flow here or the cash in up front to fund this. Well, if that's not yeah, who you want to be? If you just want to make it a small company for yourself and family, there's nothing wrong with that either. I it think we get be, I, it doesn't have to be small either. I mean, you well, that's true. Well, build true. a gigantic company, yeah. but it might not be a venture backed company. That's right? fair. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how I transitioned this, but I just I, I we got, we got to talk about the urban farming here at some point. Maybe yeah. that's a whole nother podcast. Um, because, you know, and one of the reasons curiosity I thought was a good word is you're obviously trying to run this business and grow this business. And you're dealing with a lot of stuff. I know your roles changed over time, just as you grow the company, but my curiosity is around like how you decide like, Oh, I'm going to do urban farming. And I'm going to do like, how much time do you spend on that? Why is that important to you? Like, and how important it is it, this is what I'm getting to, to have things away from what would be considered, quote unquote, your kind of your job where you're you know, maybe getting the bulk of your income, what have you. How important yeah. is that for people to, uh, to experience? Um, it is and it isn't. So I, I think when you're trying to rest, you need to rest, right? Um, so if you're trying to have some time away from your work, uh, which everyone should, and you should plan it. And that should be like part of what you do on a quarterly, you know, or, or annual basis where you plan your time away from work. There's, there's, we encourage our employees to do this. Like you have to decompress and start at problems with a a fresh set of eyes and an arrested soul. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, the farm is not that <laughs> at all. Uh, in some ways, the farm is kind of an integration with my with my personal life uh, or my professional life, I should say. Uh, I host a lot of client meetings out here. I 
you know, all the time. I mean, tonight I have one, I have someone coming over and we're going to talk about um, some product that they're working on. And, and uh, you know, so the farm is part of that, that life cycle um, where the real vision from it came with, it didn't start with that. Um, I have been wanting to do this for probably, I don't know, 10 years. I think everyone has like pastoral fantasies to some extent, yeah. right? We're all like, wouldn't it be cool? Uh, and I, but I am a builder, right? I say this over and over and over, like I, whether it's software, whether it's a company, whether it's a community organization, whether whatever it is, like the thing that gets me up in the morning is building. Uh, and I, I don't actually know how to turn that switch off in my brain. I wish I did. I don't. Um, and the farm is just another extension of that. <laughs> now the, the, the places where I have the most fun building are things that I know nothing about, absolutely nothing about farm was like that. I grew up in an apartment as a kid. I have no idea how to make a tomato grow or how to milk a goat, right? I have no idea. Um, and, uh, you know, I had to read a lot of books. I had to like ask for a lot of advice. Uh, I bought this place three years ago and, um, you know, now it grows a lot of food and I've got goats and chickens and a farm stand that we operate every Saturday. And, uh, and I was lucky in a sense that, um, you know, COVID happened pretty close after I bought the the farm. And I had, had this envision of like, I'll work on this on the weekends and the evenings. And in 10 years, you know, I'll have this thing that I want. Um, but when COVID happened, you know, pretty much every musician, bartender, you know, waiter, like all my friends that I knew that like worked these kind of jobs that were impacted, they all lost their jobs like March 2020 right mm -hmm. and um i said screw it grab a shovel come on over like and so we started this with like 20 people i mean and so there was a lot of people here digging beds planting tomatoes running irrigation lines mm. figuring out how to shear a goat none of us had ever sheared a goat before how do you shear a goat what's the what's the proper etiquette there um, well, the, the first step is getting appropriate shears and they yeah. do make big industrial shears for shearing animals. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you, you want to try and keep the, they have, my goats are in Gorn goats. They have mohair is the byproduct that they make. Uh, and so you try and shear down where you get these long strips of, of the hair. So it stays as intact as possible. It's easy for spinning later. First couple times I did it, they did not look like that. It was like these chop. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but you know, a couple of YouTube videos later, and and so I have met someone who was a shearer here, and I was like, "Could you come over and show me how to do it?" And he sold me my first pair of shears. Um, so uh, the point is, is that all these things, I think it's for me, it's really important to to keep my mind plugged into stuff that I don't know much about, and um, and I'm always kind of looking for something new uh, in that vein. Uh, the farm was a really awesome outlet for that. Um, not to mention in the summertime, I basically just turned into a vegetarian. I mean, I'm just by necessity. I'm not, I don't have any like moral code to eating vegetables or anything, but, uh, uh, and so it's, it's so amazing to see something that you put your heart, you know, into and blood, sweat and tears produce like that. I mean, back to the original thing I was saying about learning how to code, seeing the results of your work is one of the most satisfying things for any of us as humans to be able to do. And so the farm is just another outlet uh, to be able to do that. Uh, and I was lucky. Uh, I grabbed one of the last kind of plots here in the middle of Boise. I'm in the middle of the city. And so it feels like I'm out in the country. When I say the farm and people assume I'm like out in the country. I'm not. I'm like five minutes from downtown Boise. Um, and, uh, you know, these were kind of disappearing because they're turning into 
home developments or multiple units or whatever. And so I grabbed kind of one of the last ones and sit on it forever, hopefully. What a one that's awesome too. I, I was going to ask when you originally said you like, yeah, I'll client meetings. Like, are you giving them a shovel? Is that part of the the process here? Of like, I mean, <laughs> they want to join in sometimes. I mean, sometimes, sometimes people are like, wow, this is cool. And I'm like, do you want some strawberries? And they're like, yeah, that would be great. I'm like, cool. Let's go pick. <laughs> like, Here's a bucket. Go <laughs> like, you know, that happens. Sure. Um, I've sent people home with eggs before, like chicken eggs, like clients home with chicken eggs, but they have to go get the chicken eggs, right? Like they, I don't just have them ready to go for like, we walk out to chicken coop and we like get the chicken eggs and we wash the chicken and they can go home with chicken eggs. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a fun, that's a pretty fun experience. Like you're going to have a meeting to talk about a technology product and in the middle of it, you're going to like go pick raspberries and have a snack. I mean, I think, I think humans live for like unique and novel experiences and like, how can you beat that? Yeah. You, know? you, you talked about being a beginner learner and that's something, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat of like trying to not be dumb, but like, God, I, don't, I don't know anything about this. Let's figure it out. Are there any lessons that you kind of learned from, and you could take that maybe the, the farm since it's maybe the most recent, but any lessons that would be helpful for folks to uh, dispel from that um, endeavor? Of yeah, just starting. I I would say that um, our capacity to learn and to be excellent at things is somewhat impotent, um, and the only thing that holds us back is is us. Like we get in our own way from starting and doing. Um, we're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not this, that, or whatever. Uh, that is the only thing that prevents people in a lot of ways from being able to um, and achieve. And I'm not talking about just in like the professional sense. I'm not talking about in like money, right? I think when you talk about money, you're actually cheapening the thing, right? Talk about how excited that thing is to you, because if you can't grab that ball, the money's never going to follow, right? Um, and so what I always what I always say is like the the most important thing is having some like really naive, blind confidence that like goes a long way being like, I'm going to be able to do this. And there's probably nothing that's going to be able to stop me and then just going for it. And it's amazing your ability to learn and do almost anything. Um, this has been true in my life over and over and over. Um, and they're not, again, they're not always some successful professional venture or something, but like, man, was the experience worth my time? Did the connections I make, did the people I meet, like, did, was all that worth it? Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Every time. Um, and so like, even when something doesn't work out, it still worked out because I like became better at it, uh, the next time for the next time. Yeah. You learned whatever right. the, the experience. Do, do you recall like I, you know, cause I struggled so much. I know a lot of folks do with like just the confidence piece, like being fearful of life. Like, Oh, what are people going to say in judgment? Like that was a big thing. It was hard to get over, but had that been always something in your, maybe that's part of your upbringing or whatever. Like, did you always have confidence to just try things, even though it might not work out or how did you get to that point? No, um, not at all. I think, I think that's learned behavior. Um, middle school does like a really good job at programming all of us to be really self-conscious about everything. Right. I think that's just like the universal experience of being that age. Um, so you have to like learn how to not be that way. Uh, it's something you have to practice and, and where you practice it is when you're like, you have that feeling of uncomfortability and you do it anyways. 
right? All of a sudden that like barrier becomes less and less and less and less because you see the positive payoff over and over and over from that like behavior that's you're exhibiting. And you do this in small ways. I mean, think about like a networking event. I mean, as small as that is just like the confidence to go up and be like, hi, I'm this person and like just talk with a million people like that's learned experience. Nobody just has that naturally. You do it because you get the positive payoff of making meaningful connections with people that you want to meet. Uh, and that's a, that's a very small one, but you can apply that to almost anything. Um, and it's practice. It's practice, practice, practice. And eventually it becomes second nature. And as long as, you know, I've been playing like that, I still not second nature to me. I think the one that I deal with now is imposter syndrome. Right. So like there's, you know, some accolades or whatever come and, and you're like, oh, am I really deserving of this? Is this like I feel uncomfortable being told that I did a good job at something. Right. Yeah. Like that's that's one that that like now is what I face. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you run into that stuff, too. Right. It's just like your own self-conscious, your own self-consciousness about the things that you've even already done. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to what you mentioned, like childhood. It seems like everything wraps back to childhood. Oh, yeah. It's it's like, yeah, you get told like, oh, you're doing great on X, Y, and Z. And you're like, because like the the 12 year old inside you is like, dude, you suck. Like, what do you mean? You're never good. You know, like, at least that's what I, that, I, that I, you know, the the funny thing, the way I relate this, I, I, I wonder if you'll, you'll chuckle at this, but you remember the movie, A Beautiful Mind, Russell yeah. Crowe? Yeah. I, that's how I, um, that's how I'm able to visualize like fear and uncomfortableness and, and self-doubt. It's like, in the past, it used to be always right in my face. And like, I wasn't able, it, it was hurting me. Now it's like, you know, later in the movie when it's like, he sees the characters there, but like he mm. can suppress them. That's kind of how like, yeah, I see the fear, the fears there, like the self doubt there, the, all of that's there, but I'm going to move forward anyways. And so that, I know that that's, that's kind of compartmentalize the, uh, the feelings, if you will. But I don't know if that, that's like the visual that I have in my mind when I, uh, when I think about that sort of thing. I've actually, I've gone about it another way, which is, uh, I think I've tried to be a gopher for the last little years. And what's that mean? Okay. Like gophers dig, 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 dig all the time. They're just moving all the time. Go, 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 mm-hmm. go, go. And then like every once in a while, they'll hit like a rock and pop up and be like, huh, am I where I want to be? Right. Did I dig in the right direction? And, but while you're digging, you're so busy digging that you're like, not really like that other stuff doesn't have time. It can't make it on your schedule because you're too busy, like just doing what you got to do. And, and for me, you know, I, you know, run a citywide event, I run an urban farm, and I have a technology company that I have to and so I don't have a lot of time to like sit about and think about worries. Now, it took me a minute to get there. But that's been my strategy It's just like, you know, you're working at the things that you love uh, so much, you don't have that much time to worry about it. Um, And it's weird how for me, it just kind of disappears. Every once in a while, it comes up, but um I like that. That's like the, uh, I don't know if you watch Ted Lasso is like be a goldfish. You, you should make the shirt, the be a gopher. That should be, be a gopher. <laughs> yeah. I like that, man. Oh man. Uh, Nick, that's a lot of fun, man. I could probably talk to you for hours on random stuff. Maybe we'll do a part two down the road at some point. Um, where can folks uh, say hello to you online if they want to say hello or check out your work, any, any place you'd point them? Yeah, certainly. Um, Always encourage people, if you're looking for software services, check out Vinyl. That's B-Y-N-Y-L.com. There's a bunch of different ways you can communicate with us there. If you're looking to just communicate with me personally, uh, I always encourage people to just find me on LinkedIn, Nick Krabs, N-I-C-K-C-R-A-B-B-S. Uh, there's not very many of those Nick Krabs out there, so I'm pretty sure I'll be the first one that pops up. 
Uh, and just uh, you shoot me a connection request or a message or whatever. I'm always happy to meet with people doing interesting things and, uh, and have a conversation. Awesome, Nick. This was a lot of fun, man. I appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing a little bit of your journey. Hey, thank you so much for the invite. Hey, everyone. And just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you are enjoying this podcast, I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianandreco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the top right corner. There you'll find my newsletter, which goes out once a week, and is more of a digest of various things that I've uncovered, whether it's a podcast, an article, or a video, something of that nature to help you get more informed and get started and keep moving forward on your journey. Secondly, my blog, which goes out three times a week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings, is more of a micro blog, one to five minute reads to get you thinking a little bit differently and help you along the way. I really am grateful for you being here on this episode and thanks for the support of the podcast. And if I can be a resource in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks again and hope to connect soon. Take care.